Welcome to the Fertility Journeys podcast. Here's Dr. Shala Salem. Dr. Natasha Stamper is a clinical pharmacist and online fertility coach. Alaska is very cold and dark and very harsh where we lived. It was just a different world. I pretty much hemorrhaged in my bathroom that evening. My husband took me to the emergency room there, the little local hospital. They did an ultrasound. They could have ruptured something, but it didn't, luckily. Mm -hmm. That night, he was like, that's it. There's three flights a day out of there to Anchorage. And then the next morning I saw her and I handled the main symptoms of a cervical ectopic. And they don't really talk about it much. I didn't know. I remember her telling me, it's like, you're a unicorn, Natasha. And I was like, but I don't want to be a unicorn. Actually, she wrote a case study about me. And I think the way she found it was she looked at the ultrasound. And my poor husband, he just bless his heart, at Providence Hospital in Anchorage. I remember the look on his Mm. face and I said, are you scared? And my husband is one of the strongest men I know. And he just looked terrified. He goes, I'm just concerned for you. Like, I think the minute my life was at stake, he was worried. I know the fertility journey is not easy. Many suffer in silence, walking that line between hope and devastation. More often than we know, the path to building a family is met with challenges. I'm Dr. Shala Salem, and for over a decade, I have been helping people just like you on their fertility journey. As a physician and a PCOS warrior who's gone through my own fertility struggles, I am passionate about helping to support your mental and physical well-being, foster your resilience, and help you maintain your sense of self on this difficult journey. I created this podcast to support you. Each week, you can learn from our expert guests about proven holistic and integrative methods to nurture your mind, body, and spirit, and hear women share their own stories to remind you that you are not alone. Welcome to Fertility Journeys. Fertility fad, fact, or fiction. Here's the latest from Dr. Shala. Before we get into today's interview, I want to speak a little bit about a topic that I think is really important to have an understanding of, ovarian reserve. Now, if you're on the fertility journey, you may have heard your doctor say that you need to get your ovarian reserve tested. If you have not seen a doctor yet, you may have seen this online about getting your numbers checked. And basically, ovarian reserve refers to the pool of eggs that are left within the ovary, but it does not have anything to do with egg quality, which is an important distinction. There is no testing for egg quality. We believe that egg quality is associated with age, but there are many other potential factors for egg quality. We know as women, we're born with all the eggs that we'll have over a lifetime, and they decline over age. As the number of eggs decline, the ovarian reserve will decline as well. Now, we can test ovarian reserve with blood testing as well as ultrasound testing. And a blood test that's commonly used is anti-mullerian hormone, or AMH. This hormone is secreted from the early follicles in the ovary, and it's considered that it could be tested really any point during the cycle. There is not as much variability. And AMH has really become a favored test to do for ovarian reserve for the reason that you could test it at any time. And it also seems to be more accurate and better at picking up subtle changes or declines in ovarian reserve. Another test that's often done is antral follicle count, which is an ultrasound where we are counting all of the early follicles called antral follicles in both ovaries during the early part of a cycle, which is usually before day six of the menstrual cycle. 
AMH and antrofolicle are generally regarded as probably better tests of ovarian reserve. Many are doing follicle-stimulating hormones, or FSH, and this blood test is done between day two and day four of the cycle, but tends to not be as reliable and really can vary a lot and does not really pick up the subtle changes that can happen in ovarian reserve. However, it is useful in specific cases with very low or undetectable anti-malarian hormone levels. Now, we know that ovarian reserve will decline with age, but testing your ovarian reserve is not a marker of fertility in those women who have a diagnosis of infertility or in women without a diagnosis of infertility. In those women who do have a diagnosis of infertility, it's really important to look at the rest of the context of the story. What do the rest of the tests show? What is the history of the patient to really get an idea of what the ovarian reserve testing means? And for those who don't have a diagnosis of infertility or not really currently with a partner, having unprotected intercourse, ovarian reserve testing is really difficult to use. It's not a marker for fertility potential. So you really need to be cautious here if you're doing testing just random because many women can be successful even if their numbers are on the lower side. So the laboratory results and ultrasound results should be interpreted with the physician and within the context of your story. And remember, ovarian reserve testing, as I said, is not testing for quality or fertility potential. This type of testing can give us an idea of the response that will be seen during an IVF cycle. And having a high number on ovarian reserve testing, either a high number of antral follicles, high AMH levels, does not mean that you're more fertile and vice versa. And the recommendation is that Typically, those with low ovarian reserve should not be declined based on their results alone. And it's usually recommended that age and other factors be part of that conversation deciding whether to pursue treatment. We do know that those with very low ovarian reserve numbers, there is a higher rate of cycles being canceled and having fewer than three eggs retrieved, and some will not have an embryo to transfer and do experience lower live birth rates. I hope this information was helpful in having an understanding of what ovarian reserve is. And before we get into today's interview, I wanted to mention that this week is National Infertility Awareness Week. It was started in 1989 by Resolve, the National Infertility Association. Resolve is an organization that was started to help promote access to care, advocacy for insurance coverage, access to support groups and community, access to education on infertility. Currently, 7.3 million Americans or one in eight couples are facing infertility. Despite race, religion, sexuality, or economic status, infertility, as we know, does not discriminate. So National Infertility Awareness Week is a way to support awareness and support the infertility community. There are a lot of things that are happening online or on social media, so get involved in the conversation with Resolve. And orange is the color that Resolve uses to raise awareness. And the reason why orange was selected is because studies have shown that orange can create a heightened sense of activity, increase socialization, boost in aspiration, contentment, assurance, confidence, and understanding. So this week, I encourage you to wear your orange shirts, get involved with Resolve, get involved on social media with National Infertility Awareness Week. Many are sharing their stories to spread awareness and break the stigma of infertility. And this week, I am sharing an interview with a guest who shares her story of infertility and 
really one of the reasons that I started this podcast was to be able to share more stories of women, spread awareness, help to educate. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate all of those who listen. And if you have anything that you would like me to share in future episodes, or if you'd like to be a part of the show and share your story, please send me a direct message on Instagram at Fertility Journeys Podcast. You can also contact me on fertilityjourneys.org for more information. I'd love to hear your feedback or any suggestions you have for making this show better to support the infertility community. I hope you enjoy today's interview. Dr. Natasha Stamper is a clinical pharmacist and online fertility coach. She found her love for all things fertility while living in a remote Alaska village, navigating her own IVF journey alone. After many miscarriages, two ectopic pregnancies, and one cervical ectopic, she had her two miracle babies. Now with over 12 years of clinical pharmacy experience and her own experiences, she's so excited to be helping families all over the globe fulfill the dream of making their families complete. Welcome, Natasha. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I've been wanting to speak to you because there are not a lot of fertility pharmacists online on social media. And so you are one of the few, and I really wanted to speak to you about your fertility journey, but also speak to you from your clinical experience and give us a little bit of insight into fertility medications. Can you tell us a little bit more about the decision to become a pharmacist? I always wanted to be a dentist. That's what I wanted, but I'm unfortunately left-handed. So when we went to do job shadowing in college, my undergrad, it didn't go well. And I decided that the left-handed thing would be just too hard for me. Mm -hmm. It was 2004. And I graduated with a biology degree and I lived up in North Idaho and my dad and my mom were in Southern Idaho. And my dad was like, if you don't do something with this degree, get a job, be an adult, I'm coming to get you. And I had a boyfriend at the time who's my husband and, <laughs> and he wanted to go to medical school and he's very smart and he aced the MCAT and he should have went to medical school. But I got a job from my TA in chemistry. I saw her later. She was a pharmacist at Walgreens and she was like, hey, we're hiring. Do you want to come be the clerk? And so I started at Walgreens and just fell in love with it. And one day I told my boyfriend at the time, who's my husband, I said, I'm going to go to pharmacy school. Do you want to go? And he came and he never stepped foot in a pharmacy and he applied. He had really good grades. And we both went to Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. And then after that, we got the bug to get our student loans paid and have an adventure. And we lived in Bethel, Alaska. Wow, that's amazing. And I want to hear more about Alaska. I know that you spent some time in a really remote village. Can you tell us a little bit about your life there and why did you end up going there in the first place? We had a career fair at the college. and This was in 2010. So there was still some sign-on bonuses for students, but not like it was before. When you get out of graduate school, medical, pharmacy, nursing, anything, you have a lot of loans. And so mm -hmm. we knew we had a hefty between both of us being pharmacists, amount, basically two mortgages without a mortgage. Right. And we went to a career fair and there was a guy there named Greg. And he actually grew up like an hour from where my husband grew up. And he had all these pictures of hunting and fishing and wildlife and this beautiful place and berry picking and what an adventure. And my husband was like, we're going to go. And I said, uh, I don't know about this. I've never been to Alaska. We're not even married. <laughs> we need to figure this out. And my parents were just like, well, are you going to get married? I'm like, I don't, I mean, we'd been together already at that point for six years, you know, a long time. So mm -hmm. um, 
I don't know. I just took the leap of faith and we both applied and both got hired. And this giant semi came and packed up all of our stuff and barged it. We didn't know what to expect. So my in-laws had an old farm truck and they drove it to Seattle for us. And we packed it full of like ketchup and canned goods. And I don't know, all this crazy (laughs) stuff because we didn't know what to expect. There was a grocery store there, a very small grocery store, but very expensive. Like a gallon of milk at the time was $10. A gallon of gas was $7. So everything has to be barged in. It's 300 air miles from Anchorage, and it is the main hub of 50 villages. The size of Oregon was our service area. Mm-hmm. And there were 6,000 people there. And per capita, they have the most cabs. It was interesting. Oh, wow. Was, yeah, there was a large population of Korean cab drivers. Hmm. And because people don't have cars, it's so expensive. It would be $5, and they'd drop you off at the hospital and then take you home. Wow. Yeah. And then your fertility journey started when you were in Alaska, which I imagine made it even more challenging. Tell us a little bit about your fertility journey and how being in Alaska impacted that. You know, Alaska is very cold and dark and very harsh where we lived. It was just a different world. There's a lot of sadness and alcoholism, unfortunately, there which I know there is everywhere. It's just for some reason it felt very prevalent. Maybe the smallness of the community, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. There would be snow from September to June and it would be dark all the time. And then in the summer it'd be light all the time, but it wasn't a great balance. You had much more darkness than sun mm-hmm. and it just really affected my mood. And in 2012, when we were married, we were like just working, living our life. We're older, so we talked about kids, but nothing serious. And it's my period and oh, we're pregnant and it worked mm-hmm. out. Our parents were going to come into town for the first time. We were so excited to show them our adventure, our house. We bought a boat. And I remember having some spotting and I worked with an OBGYN there. And it was just really sad the way that I was treated because nothing was confidential. I had someone come up to me that I worked with say, oh, I saw your chart. At that time, we had paper charts there. I saw your chart and I'm sorry. And, I, and she met well, but it's, hey, like, mm. I didn't want to share that. And we went in the, the room with the doctor that I worked with. This is just embarrassing. And I remember him doing the ultrasound and, and joking with my husband. And, and he was like, I hope you didn't tell your family, is all he said. And I mm. said, um, he's like, it's not good. It's not good. You need a DNC. Oh, my gosh. And at the time, like, my brain didn't even go to what that meant. I didn't know. No, I just was sad. And and I, I had a DNC a few days later, which I think was part of my problems. Maybe why I had a cervical ectopic later. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. scarring. But I was scared. I never had a miscarriage. I didn't mm-hmm. know what to expect. I just wanted it to all be over. I didn't really weigh my options well or research. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know. And yeah. so I took that. Maybe the easy way out, maybe? I don't know. The other thing here that I noticed about your story is that you're a pharmacist. You have experience in science and medicine. But at that moment, you were a patient. But Sometimes I think they don't treat you that way in terms of explaining things to you as if you're just a patient. Let's explain the basics. What does this mean? What are the potential complications? What are the risks? And I think sometimes they take that for granted when you're somebody that works in one of the associated fields. They just pass over it like, oh, you understand this. It's not a big deal. But this is a major life event. And he gave you this, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm sorry that you went through that. No, that's okay. Thank you. Yeah. And it was hard to work with him for years later. I avoided when I ended up getting pregnant with my IVF baby, Miracle Mm -hmm. Baby. I hid it. I wore a giant puffer vest every day. I think I was scared. I was waiting for the shoe to drop. For sure. 
And I didn't want them to whisper, oh, she's pregnant again. I think I yeah. like to say I tried to right a wrong, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense. Yeah. In my mind. It's not true, but my irrational thoughts. I know that's you don't want anyone to talk about it until you know that everything's going to be fine. Yeah, I unfortunately don't have any pictures of myself pregnant. Oh, I'm sorry. I think there's a whole nother episode we could do on the PTSD with it all. And then once you do get pregnant, that doesn't go away. That's one of the things that gets passed over a lot is that there's this assumption that we got pregnant and now you're going to be okay. But there's a lot of trauma that goes along with, especially you had a long history of multiple miscarriages and multiple ectopics, which those are traumatic events. And you had a cervical ectopic, which is a life-threatening event. Yeah. Thank you for recognizing that. Yeah, it is. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience for you and how that was being, I can imagine being in Alaska in a remote place with something that was so serious? Yeah. And I didn't even know at the time, like once again, the science just went out in my head and I was just so consumed and I was at work. So in between those, I had a a regular topic. So I had methotrexate three times and then I had a pregnancy of unknown location that they treated with methotrexate too. And all this time I was doing Famara, I luckily had a doctor, Ursula Balthazar, amazing woman. Her husband was in the military, so she's a reproductive endocrinologist, but they were stationed in Anchorage. There's no IVF places there. And so she couldn't do IVF. She was just doing regular OB things with some specialty. Mm -hmm. And so I got hooked up with her in the middle of all this. And she was like, let's try Famara. I think that will be good for you. And so we did some cycles on that. And then we finally got pregnant. And I was at work one day and then I just went to the bathroom or I was, you know, nervous. I can't remember. I checked all the time. It was like really a bad thing. Yeah. And I had really heavy, bright red, painless bleeding, which is one of the main symptoms of a cervical ectopic. And they don't really talk about it much. I didn't know. I remember her telling me the next day when I flew into her appointment, she was like, it's like you're a unicorn, Natasha. And I was like, but I don't want to be a unicorn. She said that Actually, she wrote a case study about me. Wow. And I think the way she found it was she looked at the ultrasound. I pretty much hemorrhaged in my bathroom that evening. My husband wow. took me to the emergency room there, the little local hospital. They did an ultrasound. Luckily, they could have ruptured something, but it didn't, luckily. Mm-hmm. That night, he was like, that's it. Let's get on. There's three flights a day out of there. So he got me right on the flight. He could. And we flew to Anchorage. And then the next morning, I saw her. And she was like, well, you know, a lot of my patients have bleeding. And I'm like, no. This is a lot of blood. I went to the emergency Mm -hmm. room bleeding and it had stopped kind of then, but she was like, hmm. And she looked at it and she looked at me and she goes, I need to look at this in better light. And she left the room and I told my husband, I'm like, something's really wrong. What she was doing was she went to her office and she called some colleagues at her university where she studied. Mm -hmm. She was like, if I send you these pictures, you tell me what you see. Mm -hmm. I think it's very hard which you'll know more than me, but it's very hard to tell what it is, right? To diagnose it correctly. And I mean, it's one of those things that you will rarely see in your career, maybe once in your career. And so, you know, most of the time, experience as a physician comes from repetitive, seeing things over and over and over. And that's why a lot of times physicians do speak to other physicians in different parts of the country to get our brains together to see, have you seen this? Have you seen this? And there's a lot of Facebook groups like that because a lot of cases are so rare. You may never see one in your entire career. And so it's hard to identify something like that. Have you seen that in your career? I personally haven't, but one of my colleagues in our office had one 
while I was working there. But yes. So yeah, it was pretty chaotic. Um, They put me in the hospital for a little while, but my mental health declined pretty quickly. And I was Mm -hmm. obviously stable at that point. So they let me with the strict instructions to not leave the town to go back to the village to stay. So they put me in a hotel. I called it hotel hell. Oh my goodness. My poor husband, he just, bless his heart. I remember like, it's just a full circle because it was at Providence Hospital in Anchorage and you Mm -hmm. walk in and to the right is the pediatrician office where we ended up going one day to take our baby. To the left was the OB office where years earlier we had walked out and and I remember the look on his mm. face and I said, are you scared? And my husband is one of the strongest men I know. Mm-hmm. And he just looked terrified. He goes, I'm just concerned for you. Like, I think the minute my life was at stake, he was worried. Um, and, and then a lady saw us. We must have looked just terrified because she just said, I'll pray for you. And that mm-hmm. was it in the elevator. It was just crazy. Mm. But I ended up getting methotrexate. She, so she mm-hmm. saved my uterus. This doctor was amazing. She worked with a local OBGYN gynecologist that did oncology. Mm-hmm. And they came up with a protocol of methotrexate every other day with leucovorin mm-hmm. in between. I'll just explain leucovorin. So methotrexate depletes our folic acid, right? And then that's basically what helps dissolve the pregnancy. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the pregnancy had a heartbeat, which was very devastating to us. Oh, wow. um, I'm sorry. My life was at stake. So then after those 10 days, it was just a waiting game. I had to have my HCG drawn for like mm-hmm. almost three months before I got back to zero. Wow. Yeah. And for those who are listening, a cervical ectopic, it's in the wrong location. So it cannot, although, you know, you said you had a heart, you can have a heartbeat in a tube or in an ovary or in the cervix. That location of pregnancy cannot continue to grow and it's life-threatening. Because mm-hmm. as you said, you could hemorrhage and not survive. So I'm glad that they were able to, A, save your uterus and save you because it can be very dangerous. And having to be in a hospital for so long and then having to be in the hotel, as you call the hotel hell, it's hard. Patients go through that when they're in hospital for preterm labor or whatever complications they have. Long term, it's definitely something that can cause issues with mental health. Yeah, my mental health struggled. What kind of things did you do to support your mental health? Maybe you didn't do it at the time, but did you do anything after to help you with that? At the time, I did not. I really struggled, but my husband is a really amazing person and he kind of swooped in. And once again, it was a small town, so I was afraid to talk to people that Mm -hmm. I may work with. It just felt uncomfortable for me. So he helped me find someone that was in a different clinic and I was able to go see her. And she actually introduced me to tapping, like, you know, on your forehead. Uh-huh. I wanted to move forward with the treatments. Right? I wanted mm-hmm. to have a baby, but the anxiety of doing the treatments and the ultrasounds after what I just went through yeah. was pretty, pretty intense. It's traumatic. Me. It was. And so mm-hmm. she taught me about tapping and tapping really mm-hmm. and to be more vocal. So like when a simple thing, like the nurse coming in and saying, okay, mm-hmm. remove your pants, put the sheet on, the doctor will be with you. Yeah. I'm like, please don't leave me for more than very long because I have anxiety and I get upset. Yeah. And then they would be very kind and just wait outside the door and quickly come back Mm -hmm. in to keep my mind busy, if that makes sense. Yeah. So just teaching me to speak up and those Mm -hmm. tools. I read a meta-analysis recently. It's an older one that said that women have to be seen about six visits. And it has to be like, not intense therapy, but therapy Mm -hmm. that gives them tools to make a difference. Mm-hmm. But I think the statistics were like 60% of women and 15% of men had said that infertility was one of the worst things that's happened in their life. Mm-hmm. And so that really hit me hard. Yeah. And then my poor husband, I think he got forgotten mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I was so 
in my own head, I didn't see him, but the therapist pulled him in and we started going together and that really helped. Mm -hmm. You're right. It is sometimes difficult as a couple to include the partner. And sometimes I think partners also are like, it's more for her. You're the one who's going through it and you need the support. But I think it's important for couples to go together when possible, if you are in a couple, because they're impacted too. And they want to know how they can help you and also how they can cope with the situation. Because although you're the one who's physically going through it, so that's different, they're also going through the loss as well. And so how do they cope? Because I think sometimes, as you said, men get forgotten in this. I think in your situation, it's really important to speak up because a lot of times we forget how it is to be a patient and that sometimes when you see the physician come in, you don't say what's on your mind. Even if there are things that are upsetting to you or triggering to you, you kind of let it go. And you won't say, hey, it kind of bothered me that I was waiting here so long in the room or it bothered me the way you said things. No one really communicates that with their provider. And I think it's important to really speak up, as you said. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I always like to counsel my patients when they're doing their medication Mm -hmm. cycle, always try to include your partner. I think that helps them be a part of it. So like if you need shots, have your partner give the shots or if they can, I know with COVID, it's harder now for you to have mm-hmm. someone with you, but have them go be the note taker. I ended up starting to take a notebook and I'd have my husband write things or on our cell phones, you know, mm-hmm. and before we went to our appointment, we would sit in the car outside and brainstorm, okay, what mm-hmm. questions do we want to ask? And we'd make a little list together, just little ways I think that you can involve them. I think that's really a great advice because I think sometimes women we like to shoulder a lot of things on ourselves and think, well, this is treatment for me and and I can do this and I can do the shots myself and I don't need to ask for help. But I think it's about what you said, doing this together and making this a journey you're on together. And they want to help. They want to be a part of it and they want to know what they can do to be a part of it. Since all the treatment does go on you, what can they do to help as well? So I think that's great advice. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for letting me share. In a weird way, it does heal me to share my story. You started sharing on social media. Was it partly a healing experience for you, sharing your story on social media? Yeah, so I had not told anyone at all. People didn't even know we did IVF. I had McKinley in 2015, so we had two genetically normal embryos, and Mm -hmm. I got two little girls, which is pretty amazing Mm -hmm. after everything. And Bristol, my second one, her birth was kind of traumatic. I was life flighted mm-hmm. with preeclampsia and she was born at 32 weeks. Wow. And in the NICU for two months. Yeah, we don't do anything small at our house. But I, it was a year on her transfer verse anniversary. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting at home with her and I just had this urge to put a picture on Facebook and say, you know, a year ago today we were an embryo, but today we're sitting up eating carrots. Mm-hmm. I did that. And a girl that she was my student in Bethel, she was now a pharmacist at another Alaskan village called Nome. Mm-hmm. She's the director of pharmacy there. She messaged me and was like, hey, my husband and I are going through this and I'm not happy with my clinic. And what did you do? And how did you do it? Because you were here in Alaska too. And so I just mm-hmm. walked her through all the things I did. And I told her what clinic I went to. She changed clinics. I just supported her along the way. And now she has an almost two-year-old baby. So I just remembered saying to my husband, it was the middle of COVID. I was like really sad that we couldn't talk to patients. Mm-hmm. He wasn't loving his job. I thought maybe I could do something with this. Maybe I can help people. And and he says to me every day, don't worry about how much it costs or if you make money, just know you want to help people because that's the type of person you are. 
And I know that sounds like rainbows and butterflies, mm-hmm. but that's mm-hmm. my motto. Like, I just want to help and share what I know. Mm-hmm. And so one day he was like, what about fertility pharmacist? And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, we started talking like, well, because I love baby products. I love mm-hmm. strollers and high chairs and cute little mm-hmm. fancy moccasins. And I thought I would do something with that. And he goes, well, what about your fertility stuff? And, and mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I helped her. Why mm-hmm. couldn't I help other people? Yeah. And so I just started getting on podcasts and talking and I did some functional medicine work with my mm-hmm. second pregnancy. I saw a holistic doctor in Pullman mm-hmm. and I would do acupuncture there. And so they introduced me to the functional medicine stuff. And mm-hmm. I mean, my lining was terrible the first time around. I had failed transfer after failed transfer. They never really knew what was wrong with me, but they think it's mm-hmm. my uterine lining. And you had applied some of the techniques that you used in your second cycle like your functional medicine training to help you? What kind of things did you do with your second cycle? Yeah, so I did acupuncture. Mm-hmm. For me at that time, I tried the keto diet. It was hard, but I know mm-hmm. I have some sort of insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. So that maybe wasn't the best. Now looking back on it and learning more, but I was trying. I lost some weight and then the acupuncturist I was working with really helped me. She was also a certified herbalist. And so mm-hmm. we did some herbs and then some nourishing. She would always call them like, uterine nourishing foods. I would do that. And um, just trying to watch my sleep, my environment, I started really looking into what kind of soaps I was putting on my skin. And I loved Bath and Body Works, but I got rid of them all. I used to be a fan too. And I ran away from it about 10 years ago. (laughs) If you read the chemicals, it's crazy. Mm -hmm. So now I'm a diffuser. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And my mom, she's always been hippy dippy. She loves macrame and diffusing and homemade laundry soap. So It wasn't hard for me to make the changes, the small changes, but it took Mm -hmm. a while because, you know, we can't just all go out and buy the most expensive bakeware or whatever. But I made those small changes and just drinking more water. That really helped me, I think. Those things can definitely be beneficial. I'm all about that and changing your environment when you can and removing chemicals when you can. Now, whether it improves your lining, I don't know. Does acupuncture improve lining? I've seen it improve lining? Does changing any of your foods, like eating certain foods, improve lining? Some people say it does. I get a lot of questions about that. And I don't know if you've had any experience with particular things that you felt were helpful for you. I think acupuncture definitely made all the difference for me. Mm -hmm. It also helped with my anxiety a lot around all the treatments. I think acupuncture is great. I always feel like acupuncture being in the treatment was like this state between being awake and asleep. Yeah, that's a great way to explain it. Like you're so relaxed, but you know you're like still aware of their surroundings to a point, but you're not asleep. It's the weirdest experience, but it's the best experience. So I recommend anyone who hasn't tried it really just try it. Obviously, if it's not something that's comfortable for you or you don't find it relaxing, then I tell my patients you're not going to get benefit from it. But if you're someone who's able to really get that relaxation benefit, at least you're getting that. And I think it definitely helps with anxiety. Yeah. And I just tried to focus on things that I love, like being with my family. I love reading. Just trying to find time for those small little things. Time for yourself which is hard for us to get permission for sometimes, I think. But when someone is on the fertility journey, definitely. It's like, I'm doing this and I shouldn't be having fun or doing any fun things. I need to focus on this right now. And I think it's hard when you're going through, especially if you're grieving, you're grieving a loss to think about doing things for yourself or focusing on the things you love. A lot of times people lose 
themselves. Did you ever feel like you lost a part of yourself when you were going through this? Definitely. I lost friends. Mm -hmm. I lost a lot. My marriage took a big hit. Mm -hmm. We had talked earlier and you asked me what was one thing I wish I knew. And I thought about that for a long time this week. Mm -hmm. And all these like little perfect things to say came into Mm -hmm. my head. And it's true. Those things are true too. But I think what I really was wanting to tell you when we talked today was I wish I knew what a toll it would take on Mm -hmm. me mentally. Yeah. And there was an Instagram then with all these people that were talking about it. It was like a dirty secret. And I'm not sure if I made it that or if that's how Mm -hmm. you get to talking to people and more people are going through it than you know. Mm -hmm. My coworker, she, I didn't even know she had done IVF like the year before me. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. I knew she left for a week, but I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. My mom had a stillborn baby when I was between my brother and sister. I didn't remember. I feel like until we start talking about these things that we don't, we don't realize how many people have been through it and how we hide in shame. And I always felt like, is something wrong with me? Yeah. And I, and I don't know why as a person of people pleasing, which is how I am. Yeah. Just weird. Change it. I think that sometimes it's hard for people to figure out how to respond to. Sometimes if you do share it, you end up with this letdown of how someone responds to it because they don't know how to handle that. That's a heavy topic. Mm-hmm. I mean, if someone who's been through it, sure. But then someone else will be, I'm sure you've unfortunately heard the things like, oh, we'll be fine. You'll be okay. Just be positive. And so when you hear that enough times, it's enough to make you think, I need to keep this to myself. I don't really want to get another one of those kind of comments of people that don't understand. But there are a lot of people out there who do understand. And yes, like you said, there are people that you're going to find out, the people you know that have been through pregnancy losses that never communicate it with you because they just didn't feel that they were comfortable enough to share or didn't think that anyone was going to be able to listen to them. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to have a podcast was to be able to share stories and just really spread more awareness. And like you said, we have social media now. We have more podcasts, so we're definitely doing a much better job these days, but it's still not enough. I agree. And I think the more that we can, you know, stand out there and say, we're here for you. Mm-hmm. I worry sometimes about sharing my girls and sharing mm-hmm. that I didn't make it to the other side. I don't want to offend mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. But when I look at my social media, like analytics, that's what I get the biggest reach mm-hmm. on is that people, maybe it gives someone hope. You know, you never know. I think it is important to have hope. So, you know, you mentioned mental health. I think that's one of the main reasons kind of motivated me to have the show, because as you said earlier, mental health really takes a huge toll on those on the fertility journey. And there's been studies to show that those who are on a fertility journey, it has the same impact of getting a fertility diagnosis as someone who's going through cancer treatment or even HIV. So it's a serious impact that it can have on someone's lives. And I think sometimes, unfortunately, we don't see it that way. An example is insurance companies not covering fertility treatment as if this is quote unquote elective. So we want to put this in the same category as someone wanting to have plastic surgery is doing fertility treatment. Nobody elected to do this. Nobody wants to have to do fertility treatment, but insurance companies still don't cover it. And medical conditions and disease that needs to have insurance covers make it accessible for everybody that needs it. 
And so we really need to look at it in that manner and then it impacts everything in our lives. And you mentioned it impacted your marriage. And I think that's one of the other things that impacted you, your friendships. We don't look at how it impacts everything in our lives. How did you support your marriage when you're going through it? And is there anything that you wished you would have done differently? I wish I would have turned to counseling sooner. I was like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. I can do this. And I isolated myself. Like I remember we didn't have kids. It was just the two of us. And we'd come over from work and he would be downstairs in his chair watching his favorite shows. And I would hide upstairs and watch my reality TV. That's what would help me escape. Mm -hmm. And then we talked more and and he was like, I'm here for you. I want to help you through this, but I just don't know how. And talking to the counselor, she would teach us different tools. But one of it was once a month, we would go on a date night. But in Bethel, there was nowhere to go. So mm-hmm. we found that this one gas station had slushies. And so that was our date night. We'd get in the truck. We'd drive through the little town, get our slushie. So just making time for each other to actually touch base and mm-hmm. and just say, how are you doing? How are you feeling? And I was a little selfish. I never once asked, is this okay? I just was like you're going to do this and this, and we're going to go to Seattle on these days, and this is what we'll do. And he never said a word, but I just, well, I'm the type of person, if I can't control it, I get busy. That's my control. Yeah. And it's hard in a situation that you don't have control over. You have to figure out how to control things like your appointments and where you're going to go and what you're going to do and moving on to the next cycle very quickly and not taking breaks. And you mentioned you wish you would have started therapy or looked at mental health treatment earlier. And I think that it's so common. I talk to patients really early on about getting connected with a therapist because I think we underestimate how much of an impact it has. And then there's this other element of feeling like there's something wrong with you because you need help. Yeah, definitely. And it's that stigma of ourselves thinking something's wrong. It's just adding to the pile, right? Right. Yeah. Now you're dealing with this physical issue that now has turned into a mental health issue and everybody needs support. Just as we talked about, this is something that can be compared to going through cancer treatment. Those who are going through a cancer treatment, it would be recommended for them to work with a therapist because it's a life altering situation. And so, especially in a situation you had multiple losses. It's a very traumatic experience. And did you find anything particularly helpful for you? Opening up some to my inner circle. So I didn't share it with a bunch of people, Mm -hmm. but I had two good friends at work, Bridget and Lindsay. And I eventually opened up to them and was like, hey, this is what's going on. This is what we're struggling with. And And then they were just always there to support me. I mean, we were mm-hmm. together all the time at work anyways. And so that kind of helped to buffer that a little bit. Also, these medications aren't easy. I think mm-hmm. the medications themselves can make you feel mentally mm-hmm. out of control. And so mixing that mm-hmm. with the feeling of something's wrong with me. I don't know if this is going to work out. Will this ever work out? Mm-hmm. Those feelings can just really weigh you down. Yeah, the medications definitely can have side effects. So it's definitely important to be aware. And I think having a close group of friends or family is really important. Yeah, I think it really helped. And I think my friend Lindsay would help lighten it up a little. She would always joke with me, about sometimes embarrassing things like about trying to have a baby, not embarrassing, but just fun, like girl talk. And I think that lightened it up for me a little bit. And we would try to go on trips. So like mm-hmm. maybe 
her and I would take a trip to Anchorage together to go shopping or to spend the day to see our other friends. So like to stay busy. I think that was another way to cope. But it was hard. I remember months and months of just looking out the window at this one little tree outside my window and praying like, is this going to happen? Will this be the month? But eventually it did happen. It just, it took, I mean, about eight years. (laughs) Wow. From the beginning to end. But I did end up seeing a great doctor and that made all the difference. But it was touch and go from there too. They canceled me twice. They want the best possible outcome. I only had two. So yeah, of course. They weren't going to transfer an embryo into a little, a uterus that didn't look fluffy enough. And so even though it was hard to hear, like I Mm -hmm. would just have to tell myself, okay, that's fine. Maybe next time. Mm -hmm. So when they actually said, let's do this, I'm like, are you sure? Like I was, (laughs) are you sure you're sure? And I remember the doctor. Yeah, she was the older doctor. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize until I went through all this that I didn't always see the same doctor. So Mm -hmm. that was something with my anxiety. Mm -hmm. But she was the older doctor of the practice and she was so sweet. And she was like, Natasha, if you were my daughter, I would say, let's do this. And so that just comforted me enough Mm -hmm. to say, let's do it. And then once you were successful. You know, I think a lot of times, as we mentioned earlier, we think once we have the positive test, then things are just going to kind of go back to normal and be okay. But it doesn't work that way, does it? It doesn't. I did a post recently about anxiety being a sneaky, and I said the B word, but um, Mm -hmm. because even now, like I would go down that slippery slope. I call it catastrophizing. Mm-hmm. You know, like, am I a good enough mom? Is my child reading enough? She's making this weird sound. Is that normal? There's mm-hmm. all these things. I don't know. And I was telling a friend the other day, I wanted these kids so much, but it, it's hard for me. Like on days it's hard and my husband's working mm-hmm. and I'm home alone and I'm, mm-hmm. you know, there's spaghetti on the wall and I'm just so tired. I'm thinking, ah, these kids. But then mm-hmm. I'm like, no, oh, I wanted them so much. And she mm-hmm. was like, she's like, it's okay. You're still a mom. You're still a woman. You're still tired. Mm-hmm. Yes, you wanted them, but you're still going to have these feelings. So I think that Mm -hmm. it doesn't end with that positive test. There's so much more that comes after it. And if I can give any advice is just to enjoy the ride, like Mm -hmm. hug your babies, just be so thankful and enjoy your pregnancy. Please take pictures because I Mm -hmm. regret that really bad. You mentioned earlier that you didn't take photos. And this is something that I hear commonly because a lot of times people are worried that maybe if they take all these photos and do all these things and things don't work out that it's going to be harder. But I had heard something really interesting from Brene Brown. And I always love all the work that she does. And she talked about how when people think of kind of the worst case scenarios, they think that's going to help them get through it if it actually happened. So if you think of the worst case scenario, then you're going to actually be okay. But it doesn't make it easier. Even if you were in a situation and you had a pregnancy loss, not being happy or not enjoying it didn't make it less difficult. And she called it dress rehearsing tragedy. This idea that, you know, maybe if you just kind of held back from being happy or joyful during all of that, then it wouldn't be as sad. And I realized that so many of my patients do that. We should celebrate all the moments and we should celebrate all the steps that we're able to get to. If we're able to get to transfer and you're able to get to that positive beta and you're able to get to that ultrasound, those are all wins to celebrate. I love that. Thank you. Sometimes it's important to be able to celebrate the milestones. It really is. And I think that those milestones are what keep us moving forward. Yeah. Now looking back on it, just the little, yeah. And I think, 
I did it all too. I told myself in my mind that if mm-hmm. this is, happens, I've been through this before, this is how mm-hmm. I'll handle it. Mm-hmm. Like I went down that road just because in case I was prepared, you know? Yeah. But really it was just like mentally draining me. It was mm-hmm. really, really rough. But I I didn't give up. And I love to say like I got in trouble once from someone on social media saying mm-hmm. that not everyone can afford IVF. You shouldn't say don't give up, all this. But mm-hmm. for me, don't give up was just a way for me to keep going. Like in my mm-hmm. mind, I was like, no, we're not going to quit. We're going to keep going. We're going to do this. This will mm-hmm. happen. And I think those positive affirmations do work. It's hard in the moment, but mm-hmm. or you may feel silly. But I read somewhere where the lady was suggesting that you say, my body is capable of this. I will hold this pregnancy. I am a good person. I am good mm-hmm. enough for this. I'm doing all that I can. And just those little things, if you tell yourself enough times, maybe you will believe it. And I didn't always believe it. I didn't. Mm-hmm. But I think it outweighed those negative thoughts that I had, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense. It is hard because I know that, yes, there are some times where never give up can sound hard for a lot of people who are on the journey or may not get to the successful outcome because some people don't Mm -hmm. get to the successful outcome. And there are some women that are childless, not by choice. And so only you can know the end of your journey or whether your journey is to be continued and you're going to continue and your mantra is never give up. And so that's really up to you. And so I leave that to my patients too. Patients often ask me, well, how do I know when to stop? Where's the end? I usually say, if I see that someone's producing eggs and embryos, then you know I'm able to talk to you about the options and what the pros and the cons are, but only you know where the end of your journey is. I don't know that. I think that's so reassuring that because I I worried a lot about my weight at the time. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about that with some of my clients because Mm -hmm. some doctors aren't as soft and fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And so I thought about that, like, hey, like maybe they could just say, no, this isn't Mm -hmm. safe for you or whatever. And and I was always constantly blaming me and putting it onto Mm -hmm. me. And so I need to lose weight. I need to eat better foods. I need to, you know, Mm -hmm. which I did try. But I didn't get to the goal I wanted because in the middle of all of it, as I was depressed, I'm packing on the pounds Mm -hmm. plus the medications. Yeah, It it was just this vicious cycle. And so I appreciate you as a provider giving that permission to the patient. Yeah, because I realized that even though for me as a provider, sometimes it looks like, hey, this patient can do it if we just do this many more cycles. That might not be reality for the patient Mm -hmm. mentally, physically, financially as a couple, they may not be able to continue. And the end might be here and they know that. As a pharmacist, are there any tips that you can give us for those who are going through IVF or any things that you think might be helpful for those who are listening? Yeah, so I have so many, but I think my biggest tip is to research your clinic and your provider if you're that far behind in the in the process, right? If you're just starting out. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something that I maybe didn't do as well. I landed in a great clinic because I had a great doctor, but always make sure that you, you know, look at what credentials they have. Look at the laboratory if you're doing IVF, that sort of thing. And then always look into resources. So it is a lot income-based. However, there is grants out there. I just mm-hmm. talked to one of my clients. She was able to get a medication grant. So all of her IVF medications will be 50% off. So that was super exciting. And I can send you that link. You probably already have it too. Yeah, sure. We could put it in the show notes. That would be great. Yeah, that. And then also just, we can't control a lot of things in this journey, but we can control our organization, what doctor we see, things like that. Those are our mm-hmm. choices. And so I yeah. feel like 
if any way that that can empower you to take that and Mm -hmm. run with it. I like all those tips. Those are great. That's great advice. Tell us a little bit about some of the programs that you're offering for those who are on fertility journey, what kind of work you're doing with clients. I have my online fertility academy right now. I will be relaunching in June, I'm hoping, but that kind of just looks like where I talk about how to choose a clinic. I have a big module, of course, on the medications and the supplements. And then I also talk about um, a little bit of functional medicine at the end. I have my Hope Plus method. Mm -hmm. So where we talk about environment, mindset, things like that. And then I also do offer one-on-one coaching. I've been doing it all along, but I'm making it into Mm -hmm. a program. So if people are interested, they can go to my website at www.fertilitypharmacist.com. And then I have a link on there that says fertility coaching. And I'm also on Instagram, fertility underscore pharmacist. Yeah, you share such wonderful information. For those who are not following Natasha, please do. It's great to get all your insights as a pharmacist because you have a lot of wisdom and you also have a lot of wisdom as a prior patient. So I think it's a wonderful combination that you offer. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. You are just such a special, sweet spirit. And I wish I could go back and you'd be my doctor because you are just the kind I would be looking for. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day today to speak with me and to be able to share your story. I know that it can be challenging to be able to bring all these things back up again. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for letting me talk about, you know, cervical topics and That's one of my passions to get the word out there that this can happen and this is what it looks like. So thank you. The Fertility Journeys podcast. Thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review or tag us on Instagram at Fertility Journeys podcast. This will help us to spread awareness and reach new listeners. Episodes drop every week and you can learn more at fertilityjourneys.org. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Please consult with your own physician as information shared on this podcast is not a substitute for medical advice.